Section 19 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 25, The Eastern Question, Part 3. The key of the whole controversy out of which the Eastern War arose, and out of which indeed all subsequent complications in the East came as well, was said to be found in a clause of the Treaty of Kuchuk Keanarje, during the negotiations for peace which took place in Vienna while the Crimean War was yet going on, the assembled plenipotentiaries declared that the whole dispute was owing to a misinterpretation of a clause in this unfortunate treaty. In a time much nearer to our own, the discussion on the same clause in the same treaty was renewed with all the old earnestness and with the same difference of interpretation. It may not perhaps give an uninitiated reader any very exalted opinion of the utility and beauty of diplomatic arrangements to hear that disputes covering more than a century of time and causing at least two great wars arose out of the impossibility of reconciling two different interpretations of the meaning of two or three lines of a treaty. The American Civil War was said with much justice to have been fought to obtain a definition of the limits of the rights of the separate states as laid down in the Constitution. The Crimean War was apparently fought to obtain a satisfactory and final definition of the seventh clause of the Treaty of Keinarje, and it did not fulfill its purpose. The historic value, therefore, of this seventh clause may in one sense be considered greater than that of the famous disputed words which provoked the censure of the Jansenists and the immortal letters of Pascal. The Treaty of Kujukeinarje was made in 1774 between the Ottoman Porte and Catherine II of Russia. On sea and land, the arms of the great empress had been victorious. Turkey was beaten to her knees. She had to give up Azov and Tagarok to Russia and to declare the Crimea independent of the Ottoman Empire, an event which it is almost needless to say was followed not many years after by the Russians taking the Crimea for themselves and making it a province of Catherine's Empire. The Treaty of Keinarje, as it is usually called, was that which made the arrangements for peace. When it exacted from Turkey such heavy penalties in the shape of cession of territory, it was hardly supposed that one seemingly insignificant clause was destined to threaten the very existence of the Turkish Empire. The treaty bore date July 10, 1774, and it was made, so to speak, in the tent of the victor. The seventh clause declared that the sublime port promised to protect constantly the Christian religion and its churches, and also to allow the minister of the imperial court of Russia to make on all occasions representations as well in favor of the new church in Constantinople, of which mention will be made in the fourteenth article, as in favor of those who officiate therein, promising to take such representations into due consideration as being made by a confidential functionary of a neighboring and sincerely friendly power. Not much possibility of misunderstanding about these words, one might feel inclined to say. We turn then to the fourteenth article alluded to, in order to discover if in its wording lies the perplexity of meaning which led to such momentous and calamitous results. We find 
that by this article it is simply permitted to the court of Russia to build a public church of the Greek rite in the Galata quarter of Constantinople, in addition to the chapel built in the house of the minister, and it is declared that the new church shall be always under the protection of the ministers of the Russian Empire, and shielded from all obstruction and all damage. Here, then, we seem to have two clauses of the simplest meaning, and by no means of first-class importance. The latter clause allows Russia to build a new church in Constantinople. The former allows the Russian minister to make representations to the port on behalf of the church and of those who officiate in it. What difference of opinion, it may be asked, could possibly arise? The difference was this. Russia claimed a right of protectorate over all the Christians of the Greek church in Turkey as the consequence of the seventh clause of the treaty. She insisted that when Turkey gave her a right to interfere on behalf of the worshippers in one particular church, the same right extended so far as to cover all the worshippers of the same denomination in every part of the Ottoman dominions. The great object of Russia throughout all the negotiations that preceded the Crimean War was to obtain from the port an admission of the existence of such a protectorate. Such an acknowledgment would, in fact, have made the Emperor of Russia, the patron, and all but the ruler, a by far the larger proportion of the populations of European Turkey. The Sultan would no longer have been master in his own dominions. The Greek Christians would naturally have regarded the Russian Emperor's right of intervention on their behalf as constituting a protectorate far more powerful than the nominal rule of the Sultan. They would have known that the ultimate decision of any dispute in which they were concerned rested with the Emperor and not with the Sultan, and they would soon have come to look upon the Emperor and not the Sultan as their actual sovereign. Now it does not seem likely on the face of things that any ruler of a state would have consented to hand over to a more powerful foreign monarch such a right over the great majority of his subjects. Still, if Turkey, driven to her last defences, had no alternative but to make such a concession, the emperors of Russia could not be blamed for insisting that it should be carried out. The terms of the article in the treaty itself certainly do not seem to admit of such a construction. But for the views always advocated by Mr. Gladstone, we should say it was self-evident that the article never had any such meaning. We cannot, however, dismiss the argument of such a man as Mr. Gladstone as if it were unworthy of consideration, or say that an interpretation is obviously erroneous, which he has deliberately and often declared to be accurate. We may as well mention here at once that Mr. Gladstone rests his arguments on the first line of the famous article, the promise of the sultan, he contends, to protect constantly the Christian religion and its churches is an engagement distinct in itself and disconnected from the engagement that follows in the same clause and which refers to the new building and its ministrants. The sultan engages to protect the Christian churches, and with whom does he enter into this engagement? With the sovereign of Russia. Why does he make this engagement? because he has been defeated by Russia and compelled to accept terms of peace, and one of the conditions on which he is admitted to peace is his making this engagement. How does he make the engagement? By an article in a treaty agreed to between him and the sovereign of Russia. But if a state enters into treaty engagement with another that it will do a certain thing, 
it is clear that the other state must have a special right of remonstrance and of representation if the thing be not done. Therefore, Mr. Gladstone argues that as the Sultan made a special treaty with Russia to protect the Christians, he gave in the very nature of things a special right to Russia to complain if the protection was not given. We are far from denying that there is force in the argument, and it is at all events worthy of being recorded for its mere historical importance. But Mr. Gladstone's was certainly not the European interpretation of the clause, nor does it seem to us the interpretation that history will accept. Lord John Russell, as we have seen, made a somewhat unlucky admission that the claims of Russia to a protectorate were prescribed by duty and sanctioned by treaty. But this admission seems rather to have been the result of inadvertence or heedlessness than of any deliberate intention to recognize the particular claim involved. The admission was afterwards made the occasion of many a severe attack upon Lord John Russell by Mr. Disraeli and other leading members of the opposition. Assuredly, Lord John Russell's admission, if it is really to be regarded as such, was not endorsed by the English government. Whenever we find Russia putting the claim into plain words, we find England, through her ministers, refusing to give it their acknowledgment. During the discussions before the Crimean War, Lord Clarendon, our Foreign Secretary, wrote to Lord Stratford de Redcliffe a letter embodying the views of the English government on the claim. No sovereign, Lord Clarendon says, having a due regard for his own dignity and independence, could admit proposals which conferred upon a foreign and more powerful sovereign a right of protection over his own subjects. If such a concession were made, the result, as Lord Clarendon pointed out, would be that fourteen millions of Greeks would henceforward regard the emperor as their supreme protector and their allegiance to the sultan would be little more than nominal, while his own independence would dwindle into vassalage. Diplomacy, therefore, was powerless to do good during all the protracted negotiations that set in, for the plain reason that the only object of the emperor of Russia in entering upon negotiation at all was one which the other European powers regarded as absolutely inadmissible. The dispute about the holy places was easily settled. The port cared very little about the matter, and was willing enough to come to any fair terms by which the whole controversy could be got rid of. But the demands of Russia went on just as before. Prince Menshnikov, a man of the Potemkin school, fierce, rough, and unable or unwilling to control his temper, was sent with demands to Constantinople, and his very manner of making the demand seemed as if it were taken up for the purpose of ensuring their rejection. If the envoy fairly represented the sovereign, the demands must have been so conveyed with the deliberate intention of immediately and irresistibly driving the Turks to reject every proposition coming from such a negotiator. Menshnikov brought his proposals with him cut and dry, in the form of a convention which he called upon Turkey to accept without more ado. In other words, he put a pistol at Turkey's head and told her to sign at once or else he would pull the trigger. Turkey refused, and Prince Menshnikov withdrew in real or affected rage, and presently the Emperor Nicholas sent two divisions of his army across the Prut to take possession of the Danubian principalities. 
Diplomacy, however, did not give in even then. The emperor announced that he had occupied the principalities not as an act of war, but with the view of obtaining material guarantees for the concession of the demands which Turkey had already declared that she would not concede. The English government advised the port not to treat the occupation as an act of war, although fully admitting that it was strictly a casus belli, and that Turkey would have been amply justified in meeting it by an armed resistance if it were prudent for her to do so. It would, of course, have been treated as war by any strong power. We might well have retorted upon Russia the harsh but not wholly unjustifiable language she had employed toward us when we seized possession of material guarantees from the Greek government in the harbor of the Piraeus. In our act, however, there was less of that which constitutes war than in the arbitrary conduct of Russia. Greece did not declare that our demands were such as she could not admit in principle. She did admit most of them in principle, but was only, as it seemed to our government, or at least to Lord Palmerston, trying to evade an actual settlement. There was nothing to go to war about, and our seizure of the ships, objectionable as it was, might be described as only a way of getting hold of a material guarantee for the discharge of a debt which was not in principle disputed. But in the dispute between Russia and Turkey, the claim was rejected altogether. It was declared intolerable. Its principle was absolutely repudiated, and any overt act on the part of Russia must therefore have had for its object to compel Turkey to submit to a demand which she would yield to force alone. This is, of course, in the very spirit of war, and if Turkey had been a stronger power, she would never have dreamed of meeting it in any other way than by an armed resistance. She was, however, strongly advised by England and other powers to adopt a moderate course, and in fact, throughout the whole of the negotiations, she showed a remarkable self-control and a dignified courtesy which must sometimes have been very vexing to her opponent. Diplomacy went to work again, and a Vienna note was concocted which Russia at once offered to accept. The four great powers who were carrying on the business of mediation were at first quite charmed with the note, with the readiness of Russia to accept it, and with themselves. And but for the interposition of Lord Stratford de Redcliffe, it seems highly probable that it would have been agreed to by all the parties concerned. Lord Stratford, however, saw plainly that the note was a virtual concession to Russia of all that she specially desired to have, and all that Europe was unwilling to concede to her. The great object of Russia was to obtain an acknowledgment, however vague or covert, of her protectorate over the Christians of the Greek Church in the Sultan's dominions, and the Vienna note was so constructed as to affirm much rather than to deny the claim which Russia had so long been setting up. Assuredly, such a note could at some future time have been brought out in triumph by Russia as an overwhelming evidence of the European recognition of such a protectorate. Let us make this a little more plain. Suppose the question at issue were as to the payment of a tribute claimed by one prince from another. The one had been always insisting that the other was his vassal, bound to pay him tribute. The other always repudiated the claim in principle. This was the subject of dispute. After a while, the question is left to arbitration, and the arbitrators, without actually declaring in so many words that the claim to the tribute is established, yet go so far as to direct the payment of a certain sum of money, 
and do not introduce a single word to show that in their opinion the original claim was unjust in principle. Would not the claimant of the tribute be fully entitled in after years, if any new doubt of his claim were raised, to appeal to this arbitration as confirming it? Would he not be entitled to say, The dispute was about my right to tribute. Here is a document awarding to me the payment of a certain sum, and not containing a word to show that the arbitrators disputed the principle of my claim. Is it possible to construe that otherwise than as a recognition of my claim? We certainly cannot think it would have been otherwise regarded by any impartial mind. The very readiness with which Russia consented to accept the Vienna note ought to have taught its framers that Russia found all her account in its vague and ambiguous language, the prince consort said it was a trap laid by Russia through Austria, and it seems hardly possible to regard it now in any other light. The Turkish government, therefore, acting under the advice of Lord Stratford de Redcliffe, our ambassador to Constantinople, who had returned to his post after a long absence, declined to accept the Vienna note, unless with considerable modifications. Lord Stratford de Redcliffe, showed great acuteness and force of character throughout all these negotiations. A reader of Mr. Kinglake's history is sometimes apt to become nauseated by the absurd pompousness with which the historian overlays his descriptions of the great Elchi, as he is pleased to call him, and is inclined to wish that the great Elchi could have imparted some of his own sober gravity and severe simplicity of style to his adulator. Mr. Kinglake writes of Lord Stratford de Redcliffe as if he were describing the all-compelling movements of some divinity or providence. A devoted imperial historian would have made himself ridiculous by writing of the great Napoleon at the height of his power in language of such inflated mysticism as this educated Englishman has allowed himself to employ when describing the manner in which our ambassador to Constantinople did his duty during the days before the Crimean War. But the extraordinary errors of taste and good sense into which Mr. Kinglake occasionally descends cannot prevent us from doing justice to the keen judgment and the inflexible will which Lord Stratford displayed during this critical time. He saw the fatal defect of the note which prepared in Paris had been brought to its supposed perfection at Vienna, and had there received the adhesion of the English government along with that of the governments of the other great powers engaged in the conference. A hint from Lord Stratford made the ministers of the port consider it with suspicious scrutiny, and they too saw its weakness and its conscious or unconscious treachery. They declared that unless certain modifications were introduced, they would not accept the note. The reader will at first think, perhaps, that some of these modifications were mere splitting of hairs and diplomatic, worse even than lawyer-like quibbles. But in truth, the alterations demanded were of the greatest importance for Turkey. The port had to think not of the immediate purpose of the note, but of the objects it might be made to serve afterwards. It contained, for instance, words which declared that the government of His Majesty the Sultan would remain faithful to the letter and the spirit of the stipulations of the treaties of Keinarje and of Adrianople relative to the protection of the Christian religion. These words, in a note drawn up for the purpose of satisfying the Emperor of Russia, could not but be understood as recognizing the interpretation of the Treaty of Keinarje on which Russia had always insisted. 
The port, therefore, proposed to strike out these words and substitute the following. To the stipulations of the Treaty of Cainarge, confirmed by that of Adrianople, relative to the protection by the sublime port of the Christian religion. By these words the Turkish ministers quietly affirmed that the only protectorate exercised over the Christians of Turkey is that of the Sultan of Turkey himself. The difference is simply that between a claim conceded and a claim repudiated. The Russian government refused to accept the modifications, and in arguing against them, the Russian minister, Count Nesselroda, made it clear to the English government that Lord Stratford de Redcliffe was right when he held the note to be full of weakness and of error. For the Russian minister argued against the modifications on the very ground that they denied to the claims of Russia just that satisfaction that the statesmanship and the public opinion of Europe had always agreed to refuse. The prince consort's expression was appropriate. The Western powers had nearly been caught in a trap. From that time all hopes of peace were over. There were, to be sure, other negotiations still. A ghastly semblance of faith in the possibility of a peaceful arrangement was kept up for a while on both sides. Little plans of adjustment were tinkered up and tried, and fell to pieces the moment they were tried. It is not necessary for us to describe them. Not many persons put any faith or even professed any interest in them. They were conducted amid the most energetic preparations for war on both sides. Our troops were moving toward Malta. The streets of London, of Liverpool, of Southampton, and other towns were ringing with the cheers of enthusiastic crowds, gathered together to watch the marching of troops destined for the East. Turkey had actually declared war against Russia. People now were anxious rather to see how the war would open between Russia and the Allies than when it would open. The time when would evidently only be a question of a few days, the way how was a matter of more peculiar interest. We had known so little of war for nearly forty years that added to all the other emotions which the coming of a battle must bring was the mere feeling of curiosity as to the sensation produced by a state of war. It was an abstraction to the living generation, a thing to be read of and discuss and make poetry and romance out of, but they could not yet realize what itself was like. End of section 19